0: Hello, and welcome to The Future of Coding. This is Steve Krauss. So, uh, first things first, I want to apologize for the radio silence for the last month or so with this podcast. I've been traveling a bit, and it's been a little bit difficult uh, nailing down guests, uh, but today I'm excited to bring you uh, Philip Guo. He's a assistant professor of cognitive science and an assistant professor of computer science at uh, UC San Diego. Uh, he has, I think, a really fascinating research topic uh, summed up by the phrase "learning uh, teaching programming at scale. His research spans computer, human-computer interaction, online learning, and computing education. Uh, he builds scalable systems that help people learn programming and he also studies um, from more of a sociological perspective how and why diverse uh, crowds study computer science. Uh, one of his big claim to fame is uh, PythonTutor.com, a widely used visualization and collaborative learning platform, and his website pgbovine.net has uh, over 500 articles, videos, and podcast episodes, and he gets 750 page views per year. And I think that's originally how I found um, Philip through his. It was either through Python Tutor or through his very prolific and um, fascinating website. Um, And I think we had a, a really fun conversation. With a little bit of different flavor than normally than, than I normally have on this podcast, we talked um, a lot about education and different uh, demographics, why they learn computer science and how to help them. Um, and then towards the end, we talked a little bit more about uh, building prototypes um, that point towards the future in the way that you know, we technologists do. Uh, so without any further ado, I bring you Philip Guo.
1: Welcome, Philip. All righty. How's it going, Steve?
0: Great. How are you?
1: I'm doing good. I, uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation cause I have, I have absolutely no context because I, you know, something has showed up in my inbox and I went there and it's, uh, this is actually fun because of that.
0: Great. Yeah. Thanks for being brave and being open to stuff. Yeah. Um, so, uh, your work centers on, uh, this phrase, uh, learning programming at scale. Uh, and it's a pretty self-explanatory phrase, but I was wondering if you could just unpack it. Um, for people who aren't familiar with your work.
1: Yeah. So I I came up with this kind of catchphrase, learning programming at scale for some of the research talks I was giving a few years ago. And the the basic idea is um, that, you know, learning programming or learning computer programming is now a pretty widely accepted thing. And, you know, more and more schools are trying to teach coding to at both the K-12 level and at the university level, you know, computer science departments are growing. A lot of people from various different majors are taking programming and computer science classes. So it's just a very blossoming thing. And there's things like hour of code and like trying to get computer science and programming in schools. And I think these are all really great efforts. Um, and, and my own focus is on something complementary, which is the at scale part, which is, you know, let's think about the you know, 99% of the people who don't have access to either a traditional school, you know, whether in K-12 with computing uh, education access or to a college environment, you know, all these people who have to learn, who want to learn at all ages, all demographics, and all different life situations, how can we build tools and support to help them learn? So, so, you know, I think to really scale up to the world, we have to do stuff online. And, you know, it, it can probably it probably won't be as good as having in-person teachers, but you know the reality is 99% of the people in the world who want to learn this stuff don't have access and we want to try to scale that up to the world. So that's kind of where the learning programming at scale, the at scale part came from.
0: Interesting. So it sounds like uh, one, you answered one of my questions already um, because my first, one of my questions was, that is the ideal uh, of, of learning programming at scale that one day we get rid of the classroom um, and then everyone kind of learns online. Um, but it sounds like you think that the classroom is a wonderful thing to have if you can afford it or, um, but that your, your work is for people who who can't for some reason.
1: That's right. Yeah. I think, I think it's largely complimentary that, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that it's, it's still very hard to beat, you know, good in-person instruction, um, both from just from a technical perspective of having someone helping you debug and helping you, um, along, but also from motivational perspective, right? So it's like, you know, you could read all the stuff on Stack Overflow and read programming blogs, you know, all day, but then having someone there coaching you along, motivating you, giving you some kind of an impetus to learn the stuff is just so much stronger than, you know, having to look through that stuff on your own. So I think the in-person stuff will not be really going away in my view, but most people just don't have access to that.
0: Yeah. Um, so I think you mentioned in your work, you, there are a lot of different demographics that are like non-traditional programming learners that you focus on. Um, one in particular made me smile you, um, focusing on why adults uh, 60 and over are studying programming. And part of why I I thought that was interesting is that two years ago, I was teaching a coding course for adults, which was strange for me because I normally teach children and a woman in her sixties signed up. And her story is that her son, uh, was doing a startup in Silicon Valley. And she was retired, and she wanted to help him in her free time. And so she was she thought that she'd like learn to code and maybe get to, you know, help him with with his coding.
1: Yeah, uh, so. that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, these these are really interesting stories. So you know, the, the the impetus for that project came about because we can talk a lot more about this later. But um, you know, I have this programming education platform called the Python Tutor, which now it's a bunch of languages. So the name is kind of a misnomer, but um, we have a lot of users on the site. So as you know, it's a great platform for collecting research data because I can put these mini surveys on the site. So, you know, one of the surveys I put on a few years ago was trying to get uh, people who are 60 and over because I think that's a very understudied demographic. So I collected a bunch of survey data and analyzed a bunch of survey kind of more qualitative data and trying to get at their motivations, um, like like your anecdote before about the woman and her son. And really just trying to classify, you know, why are these people learning programming? You know, most of them are probably not doing it professionally for their jobs because they're maybe retired or semi-retired. But I just thought it was a really interesting population. Um, there's also another population that I did a recent survey for that uh, one of my more recent research papers about is about um, non-native English speakers. So like the another understudied demographic are people who are not native English speakers. And, you know, when you think about programming, it's so English centric, right? These programming languages, tools, uh, documentation, all the primary websites are in English. But again, if you think about the at scale part, the 99% of the people around the world, most of the people are not native English speakers, but yet they have this, kind of double language barrier of having to learn English and having to learn the programming. So, you know, I think the non-native speakers and the older adults are two examples of populations that I'm interested in studying. And there, there are many others as well. Those are the two that I've kind of done concrete projects on so far.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious if you could summarize what you found, like why uh, were other older adults studying programming and um, what, what also what, what you found with the non.
1: Industry yeah. Course. So the older adult one, you know, the, the story you told about the woman or son was actually a really good one. Um, Some of them were, you know, were about people who are retired who want to who wanted to understand technology and kind of empathize and keep in touch with the younger generation. Right. So, you know, some of these stories are about, you know, oh, my grandson or my granddaughter is in college learning computing, you know, programming stuff. I want to just take some online courses to see what they're doing because I have free time. Um, There are other people who are actually still working. right? I mean, 60 is not that old nowadays, you know, people are still working in the workforce. So there are people who want to update their skill sets for work. Um, so I think so both between updating skill sets for work and the enrichment kind of aspect of trying to understand what technology really is about is both interesting. And then for the non-native speakers case, um, you know, the motivations, a lot of it were, were job related, right? Because especially people learning online is taking these online courses, trying to get certificates. A lot of it is job related. Um, and, and I think uh, for a lot of the people, it's really a, a, a way to for economic mobility, right? If you're living in countries where there may be not that great paying job opportunities to do these remote programming jobs or be able to work as a software engineer, you know, in a remote office for a multinational company, or even hoping to be able to immigrate to countries like the U S to work in the software industry. It's just like a tremendous boon in terms of just economics. Right. So I think that's why people are really motivated, you know, especially from many countries where English is not their first language.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I, uh... It makes sense to me when you said that one of the things you found with the older adults is that they wanted to connect with the younger generation. Um, I guess that that's kind of the story that that I personally found with with the old lady in my class. Yeah, uh, I'd be curious. Uh, I think you mentioned like one of the other um, community like demographics that you mentioned in your research is p- conversational, people who want to be conversational with programming. Um, and I've, and I definitely, you know, like basically every like MBA student these days wants to be conversational, wants to be able to yeah. talk to their code monkeys. So I think that that's a very interesting demographic to study.
1: Yeah. So the conversational programmers one, this was led, these studies were led by, um, one of my colleagues, Parmeet Chalana, who is uh, currently at Simon Fraser university. So that's, uh, near Vancouver. And, uh, we did a bunch of things where it was mostly her and her students interviewing people, but they, they did a bunch of in-person interviews. And also we did some surveys as well at companies about basically our demographic was, you know, anybody who is trying to learn programming or, you know, taking these coding courses or self-teaching themselves, but their requirement is that they don't need to actually write code for their job. Right. So this is, again, you know, this kind of going along with my research theme of thinking about the people who are learning programming, but not your typical demographic of, what a lot of people study. So in this case, the conversational programmers is our requirement is you're trying to learn programming, but you don't actually have to write code. So then we're like, why are all these people learning to code when they don't actually have to write code? And like you alluded to a big reason was because they, they are, you know, I think one typical case is like someone who's like a product manager, right? Like you are kind of working closely with engineers and you want to kind of know what, you know, how to speak their language and how to relate to them, but you don't necessarily need to be coding up all the, um, all the implementation
0: yeah so is is the point of this like this um motivational demographic research to like trying to expose problems with the coding environments we have now so that like kind of in the the other half of your research you could like build better environments is that
1: yeah uh, that's actually that's actually that's actually way more for thinking than uh than (laughs) i would love to say that that was a master plan all along but um (laughs) But, you know, in reality, it's these two threads of building interesting programming environments and studying demographics I mean, I've have been pretty independent. But, yeah, I mean, one hope is that through a lot of this research, it will try to expose gaps in current environments. And then we can close the loop later on and say, you know, what are better ways to teach programming for people who are conversational or who are older adults or who don't speak English uh, well, uh, or who are, you know, who are struggling with English as a language barrier. So far, I haven't really connected the dots yet. Um, But I think that uh, I I think that in the future, that would be a great, that would be a great thing to do. Um, I think right now, you know, that the, these two threads of research of just building programming tools, which we can talk about in a bit, and also studying these demographics are largely independent. And the stuff we just talked about so far with these um, few research papers have mostly been trying to add to the body of knowledge, right? So like, we we, you know, there's a lot of researchers studying K-12, you know, what does it take to, you know, what are pedagogical best practices in classrooms for, you know, elementary schools, let's say, and then also what are pedagogical best practices for, you know, first year college students trying to take a CS1 intro course. So there's a lot of research in that. And, you know, what myself and my colleagues are trying to do is, you know, think about, let's think about people in completely different demographics who have not been studied and figure out their challenges and motivations.
0: Yeah. So one one question that I thought about when I saw the phrase learning programming at scale was um, like, if there are people like you studying studying learning like x at scale now that we have i guess moocs like moocs is like the thing that kind of made learning at scale an interesting question mm-hmm. are, are there researchers Do it, it, like it, it almost feels like f- from some perspective you're closer to to like someone who's trying to teach learning math at scale than than uh like to a regular programmer programming field
1: yeah, that's a that's a great um, yeah. I mean, that's like the other dimension, right? So, so yeah, the other way to parse the learning programming a scale sentence or phrase is uh, is learning at scale, and then you just <laughs> shove programming in there, yeah. right? Because you can do learning math at scale or learning physics at scale. Yeah, so the learning at scale community is you know that 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 kind of keyword came up, uh, w- like you said, with the rise of these MOOCs and. The early 2010s, and um, there there's a very active community of researchers in the learning and scale community of which I'm part of, and we have a conference series, we have research papers, we have research meetings. It's a you know it's a burgeoning academic community, and um, you're right, a lot of those folks uh, are trying to do kind of large scale data analytics, or you know basically applying you know A/B testing, data analytics, um, you know uh, kind of student progress tracking, and and a lot of that work has been trying to be fairly independent or agnostic of domain but um but my own work is really just honing it on the programming domain but you're right there's a there was a pretty big body of work on just learning at scale in general i would say
0: mm. and um so i'm i'm wondering um cuz um i imagine there's a lot of overlap so I, like for example in your uh python tutor system Um, which I'll I'll let you summarize uh, in a second. Here, maybe why don't you just summarize it before I ask the question?
1: Sure, sure. Um, so the Python Tutor system, if you go to, I mean, you can link to it. It's just PythonTutor.com. Um, it, it started out as being for Python, but now it's actually for a lot of languages. Um, but basically, what it is, it's a, um, it's a, it's a, vi- it's a code visualization environment. So you, you, there's a lot of these environments where you can write code online and run code now. These online IDEs, right? So you can just write code. You know, maybe have a REPL. You can kind of run stuff to see what your code does. But, um, but what my system has that's really unique um, that I haven't really seen anywhere at the scale is the ability to do a single step visual debugging, right? So it's kind of, you write a piece of code and you can actually step through it one step at a time exactly like a single step debugger uh, except the twist is that it actually draws the the state diagrams for you so it kind of draws you all the stack frames the global variables what the types of the variables are what the values are and if they're pointing to complex objects like an array or a list or a dictionary or a, you know some kind of compound object it draws the pointers and the box and pointers for you so it allows you to step through execution really inspect what your program is doing in addition to just whatever it's supposed to do, like print to the console or something. So a lot of people have been using it to basically build up a better mental model of what their code is doing, because they can actually kind of peek inside of their code step-by-step step as though a teacher were explaining it to them.
0: Cool. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for the, the, the explanation. it yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful website. I, okay. I used it, um, many years ago when I was first learning to code. Oh, wow. Thanks. Um, so one of the things I think at least cuz I when I went back um to to look at it I um I just now I, I saw that you have this feature that allows people to ask and receive anonymous help um which I thought was great and it, it was like even I was just like you know interested to like click on a link and see if I could help someone who who requested it I it was like a, yeah just it, it was so simple the way the interface was built um but it it seems like It could be a compelling feature so um anyways um what got me this question is that i imagine that peer tutoring online is something that is common in the the world of learning at scale so um i'd just be fascinated to hear about uh, like the challenges and successes in in that world of peer tutoring
1: Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great thing to bring up. And I'm glad you brought it up. So we'll, I'll I'll talk about the feature in a bit. But this general idea of peer help is, yeah, I mean, I think that is the one of the ways to scale up learning is that, you know, the reality is that there are very few instructors, and there's a lot of peers, right, especially when you're at scale, there's even more peers, because if you're in a MOOC, and you have thousands of students, you only have one instructor, maybe a few volunteer TAs, running the course i mean a lot of times with these MOOCs, the instructor isn't even actively running right it's being it's been pre-recorded and then they just run the course like a bunch of times every you know few months and maybe there's some volunteer tas or some uh kind of instructional staff who helps out who mans or who kind of uh uh moderates the forum but for the most part it's the peers kind of trying to help each other and i think the most common form of peer help in um in MOOCs and online settings is uh, asynchronous, right? Is via forums and um, discussions. So mm-hmm. the forums and MOOCs are fair. Well, good ones, I guess, are fairly active. You have sites like Stack Overflow. You have other sorts of... Um, you know, discussion forms, Facebook groups, you know, people who take MOOCs actually form these ad hoc Facebook groups, you know, where they just post messages and help each other. Um, so researchers have kind of mined data from, you know, Stack Overflow is a good example, or forums from discussion, uh, from MOOCs are another source of, you know, public data that they could mine. Um, and I think there's less done in the synchronous space, um, which is, I can, I can talk about that in, in terms of my project, but I think you know, my own interest in this, again, is trying to push forward on where other people haven't done as much. So the the synchronous real-time tutoring space is something um, I'm super interested in. So I'm, I'm happy to go into that in depth or, or answer your questions about that in general.
0: Yeah, I'd be curious to hear how... I guess I'm also kind of, I was going to say, I'd be curious to hear as how it's going, but I, but now I'm wondering how you would measure the effectiveness of, of a system like that. Like the, the, the students rate at the end of a session, if their, pro, their question was answered.
1: Yeah, that's a great, uh, great question. So, uh, yeah, just stepping back the live tutoring mode, you know, I really do need a, a marketing person because you know, this, this whole Python tutor project, this whole thing is kind of a one man, you know, band at this point. It's basically me <laughs> holding it together with duct tape. Um, mm. uh, we can talk about open source project sustainability later too. It's, a, it's another giant topic. Yeah, but, um, that's a
0: question on my list. I yeah, that's a, good, that a
1: great question to cover later. But um so so the idea with this project is that um you know the the site originally was a visual debugger. So that provided a service that was valuable to a lot of people and it was um it was a single user mode, right? You go on, you paste in some code or you write some code and you kind of debug it. So it's like a a scaffolded environment to help learners understand how their code works um and then a few years ago this was i think 2014 i basically added a uh, there's this great library called together js uh that mozilla labs worked on it, it's been discontinued i mean like many <laughs> talking about open source like many open source projects it's been discontinued um but together js what that lets you do is it lets you basically um, instrument a website, uh, which is some JavaScript code, and it lets multiple people go on that website and browse together. And it works through WebSockets. So, you know, you start a server and then, you know, uh, whatever website you're on, let's say Wikipedia, I'm just making up, um, you can have multiple people go on the site, you can see each other's cursors, and then you can um, chat on that site. So I thought that was a really cool library. So I integrated that into the Python Tutor site so that actually turned the site into a multi-user mode. So what you can do is you can have multiple people go on on a single session, write code together, just like in Google Docs, and then uh, run the code and play with the visualizations together. And you see the multiple cursors and then chat through text. So um, that feature was implemented about four years ago, yeah, 2014. And the catch with that feature, though, was that you have to send the link to somebody, right? So that feature, I called it, you know, live help mode or something. But the idea is that you start a live session, just like actually, just like this thing we're using to record the podcast, right? The Zencaster, exactly like it. It's like you start a special URL, you know, you you generate like a garbled URL, then you send it to your friend or your tutor, or maybe you post it on a discussion forum for your MOOC. And you say like, help, I need help. I'm, I'm online right now. If someone can click on this link and join in, you can basically pair a program with me and guide me through these things. Um, so that feature worked uh, pretty well and we had, you know, a fair amount of users. Um, and, uh, but the interesting thing about that feature was that, uh, a lot of people didn't realize that no one would come to help you. Right. So they, they clicked on the start the chat button and they expected someone to come chat with them because they thought this was like a help service right um so we got a bunch of this you know a bunch of the server logs just show people you know opening the chat and saying hi you know can you help me you know i really need help on this and they're just kind of typing into the void
0: (laughs) (laughs) that makes sense Uh,
1: yeah so then you know after you know that then the natural next feature to think about i mean this is how i design a lot of these things is actually by user demand right so so by observing this the natural thing to do is to think about how can you get the peers on the site to actually help each other so the feature as it's currently implemented which i implemented i think in october so about six months ago yeah about six months ago um a weird story about that is I actually broke my foot. So mm-hmm. I was immobile for about a month. Uh, so I just actually had a lot of time to code. It's not the best reason to code, but it's actually, yeah, <laughs> it was a productive use of my time. I was basically at home hobbling around. But um, so the feature that I have now, uh, which I guess I call live help mode, I don't know what better way to call it is, you can start a public help request. So basically, Uh, when you start a help session, you can either choose to be private or public. And if it's public, then it will post your, um, request on a help queue, which is like displayed at the top of the screen, whenever people go to the site. And, um, and then it's just ordered by, you know, uh, who goes on at first. And this was motivated by kind of in a again, a lot of these, this work is motivated by in person classrooms. So in a lab, you know, imagine if you're in a lab class in college, you would probably either raise your hand and have the TA come help you or you would write your name on the board because the TAs have to help too many people. So you people write their name on the board as a public help queue and they say, I need help. I'm sitting in seat, whatever, you know, in the room. And then there's just a list and the TAs or other student volunteers just go around and just get grab people off the list and go and help them. So this interface is very similar. You just, it just, um, you put on a list and then anybody in the website, if they want, they can click and they can actually join in to your session and help. And that's the the very basic idea of that, and I'm I'm happy to take questions at this time or go, go into details. We have talked for a while on this, so that's the very basic idea.
0: Yeah, um, it, it's it's very cool, and it, and the progression of how you got there makes a lot of sense. Um, I have a, a a project like in a very similar space. It's a IDE environment for kids to to code, and 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 we, yeah, we provide a little chat interface, but they can only they can only talk to us. I, I'm just you know a little bit too scared of letting kids loose in a peer to peer way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about that. That is, that is one of the biggest concerns is that right. Of like, if you just open this up to the world, you know, maybe all hell will break loose.
0: Yeah. I, I guess for me in particular, my, I think one of the differences between our systems is that uh, yours doesn't have uh, users, So everyone's kind of anonymous, mm-hmm. um, which I, I get, at least in my head seems to like lower liability, uh but um i i and i guess another another thing that that i have that i imagine you don't is um the th- this system was built for use at a specific after school program that i was running right. at the time and um i just w- was you know terrified of a parent you know being upset that you know s- some kid or some person some creeper on the internet was saying bad things to their child
1: yeah yeah i mean these these are all very valid concerns and i was you know i I thought a lot about that in designing the system, and, and you know, earlier on, you mentioned how the interface just looked really simple and you know, and, and straightforward. It's like, oh, that's exactly what you expected to be, but actually, there was a lot of thought put into how do you make this in a way that um, minimizes kind of bad behavior. And I, I'll go into a little bit. I mean, the the first decision was to not have a user accounts. Um, part of that was just an engineering thing, right? It's like it's just a lot harder to run a site with user account than not and um so basically everyone has a pseudonym that is just assigned and stored in their local storage in their browser so you know your user 2a5 or whatever and uh the nice thing about that is you have some kind of persistent identity but you don't actually customize your username um and then the other thing about the the thing is it's anonymous uh and it's also private right so like a lot of the issues that comes up with um with uh, kind of trolling and other sorts of spamming and stuff. And it's because these forums are public, right? If you have a public forum, you have to really moderate it. Um, otherwise, you know, all sorts of bad stuff can happen. So having a private thing, you know, lessens incentives for bad behavior um, and also not having identity associated with, with it. Um, and the other part is that there's you have the ability to just, you know, kick or block people. Basically, if something bad's happening, you can just kick them out of your session, and then you can undo the changes they made. And with these lightweight things, I've looked at the chat logs and the server logs, and so far, there's been very few instances of bad behavior. I mean, it does happen because it's internet, but it's it's fairly few. And also, you know, my site's not popular enough that like it's not like Reddit, right? I mean, if it's on the order of Reddit size, then yes, you're going to have a lot of chaos because it's millions and millions of people. But it's still small enough that the people going on it are usually pretty honest and pretty earnest about learning and helping others. And, and they're not just on it to mess around. So I think that sort of combination helps it to maintain, you know, quality, uh, you know, as much as possible right now.
0: Yeah. Um, Are there another, I guess, um, here I had a question, but I just want to say before I, I was going to, the question was um, are there other interesting experiments in the like, Leveraging humans uh in some creative way for scalability uh, like w- one of yours that I thought was really fun was the um the code Opticon uh yeah. project because f- so the th- the way I think of that project is it scales a tutor um, yep. th- uh it-, it allows one tutor to look at like the screens of a dozen students at the same time um, which intuitively to me makes a lot of sense um because a- as a teacher myself. You know, very. If you have a, a handful of students, it, it's a, it's so much more efficient use of your time than one-on-one tutoring because chances are, you know, the only one student will need uh, help at at a given time.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly along the right line. So, I mean, a lot of these projects have the same flavors. So the Code Opticum project a few years ago was prototyping what does it mean to scale up one tutor, right? So the stuff I just described is still one-on-one. It's, it's scaling in the sense of you're taking advantage of the fact that there are maybe dozens of learners on the site at once and, you know, rather than waiting for a tutor which might not exist or might not come you just post your question publicly and then let a volunteer crowd of people whoever is available to join in join in um, the code opticon one requires a dedicated staff right so that the idea behind that is you might use that in a course like an online course or a real life in light uh, in person course where you're like i'm gonna have a virtual office hours today at 3 to 4 pm anybody who comes on the site during that time and ask questions, I'll be online and I can monitor a bunch of you because I have this special dashboard interface. And then I can kind of chat with you um, selectively. So that was kind of pushing the ideas research wise to how do you scale up tutors? Um, the, the system itself isn't deployed. Um, it's, it was a prototype. The code system is employed just because I don't have the infrastructure currently to support tutors and accounts and all that stuff, right? Because then you have to like create a tutor account and there's just a whole other like workflow to to get that in, but the you know, but the proof of concept is there, and, and you know, given more, given more resources, that would be a, a great thing to have on the site.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, to me, it's a, yeah, it's a fascinating uh, uh, idea at the very least, and I, I'd be curious to hear, um, like, from your knowledge of the greater learning at scale space, if there are other interesting experiments um, that that you know of, even if they don't have to do with coding. Uh,
1: yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think in the synchronous space, the kind of real-time space, there's not as much um and you know, uh, w- some of my colleagues um from uh it was this collaboration between UC San Diego where I currently work and, and Carnegie Mellon. They have this thing called uh they have two systems, this thing called Talk Talk About and Peer Studio. I can send you the links later. And the idea behind those systems is to one of them tries to connect people on Google Hangouts to do video synchronous video chats, and the idea behind this talk about system, this was a few years ago, was that these discussion based courses they wanted to emulate kind of a in person uh, kind of discussion based course, right? Because a lot of these MOOCs are very. Uh, mechanical, you know, you have multiple choice questions, you might be reading, you might be doing some code, but what about for MOOCs in the social sciences or the humanities where, you know, you really want that experience of a small class of diverse viewpoints of people really interacting with each other. And, you know, their hypothesis is that if we structure these incentives, right, and and make it bacon in the course, maybe we get better discussions because these people are taking the course from all over the world, right? It's not just a bunch of students at one university, it's people from all over the world. So they did these experiments where they, um, they uh, kind of made, I guess, optional assignments or course activities where they're like, you know, at one o'clock to two o'clock this, this hour, we're going to group these students, you know, we randomly pick students from different parts of the world and you're, you know, the five of you are assigned to a discussion group and then we'll give you some discussion prompts and we're just, we'll record your discussions and see how that goes. And And their other project, um, Peer Studio, was about peer grading. So so there's quite a bit of work on having um, having students in MOOCs grade each other's work or give feedback on each other's work, because again, this, this helps scale the the assessment or grading problem right because you can't have one instructor grade a thousand you know uh reports or Mm -hmm. you know writing prompts right if you imagine anything that's not auto graded right like if you have to do a design sketch for a design class or a write a paragraph for some you know social sciences or humanities class uh you want to have the you know try to have different students uh give feedback on them and and their whole system was structured around kind of um doling out these bits of grading and distributing it amongst the student population, and then giving prompts and structured rubrics so that they can do a better job in grading. So that, that's sort of the flavor of the work in terms of um, kind of uh, kind of multiple people connecting together in real time um, or near real time, but not as much as far as I know about the kind of one-on-one tutoring or the one-to-many tutoring that, that I've been doing. Hmm. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Thanks for providing perspective. It's interesting that it's less crowded than you, than maybe I would think. Uh, yeah.
1: And I think a part of it is, um, you know, we can, we can get into this later on, but I mean, part of it is just that, you know, I I kind of choose problems or areas to tackle where kind of my own technical expertise is at an advantage. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the thing is no one, not many people have done this stuff, that I've, I've been investigating of this scaling up tutoring and, and especially with coding and stuff is because the, you know, you, you do need quite a bit of uh, kind of programming and technical expertise to build and scale these systems. So, uh, you know, Being able to do the engineering is actually, uh, I think, a prerequisite for being able to explore a lot of these interesting research frontiers. Um, So I've kind of picked problems kind of purposely where I I had kind of a technical advantage in a way.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. I guess now it's, um, I feel like uh, it's easy to predict that uh, learning programming at scale will definitely be like a more developed field than learning any other thing at scale just because... Uh, the people who want to teach programming at scale like know how to scale
1: yeah and i think that what you bring up is an interesting blind spot too right so like you know i think a really fascinating problem is how do you scale up all these classes that require in-person discussions you know in the social sciences in the humanities in law you know these kind of case-based things i mean i am i don't think i'm personally well equipped to do that because i that's just not where my expertise lies but i think Those have tremendous potential because, you know, a lot of the quote unquote criticism of learning a scale is that, oh, this is just for learning how to code or learning physics or learning very STEM kind of science and engineering topics that some people might find very dry. But what about, you know, more humanistic things? What about, you know, the things where you need discussion and debate and all the very human to human, messy human to human interactions? I think scaling those are fascinating. I just don't have a great sense of how I would personally do it. Yeah.
0: Me, me neither. Um, so uh, to kind of jump to a separate topic, uh, one of uh, your videos, you talk about um, the difference between research in, I guess, like the hard sciences versus research in technology. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just like the way you described that in technology, um, the research looks like building prototypes that point the way to the future. And Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that phrase a lot. Um, so, um, and I guess like you kind of hinted that like one of the main differences between uh, industry and and academia, be, because like it seems like they're similar because they're because in both we're building stuff we're, we're building mm-hmm. things, unlike in science. But it sounds like uh, one of the distinctions that you pointed out is that uh, in academia the time horizon is is a lot longer than in industry.
1: Yeah. So I think that was was a video I recorded. One was at the dog park, I think. It was a dog park one. (laughs) One of the few dog park vlogs. Um, Yeah. So this is something that, you know, in in a lot of the stuff we talked about, I mean, we started this hour talking about more traditional, I would say traditional education and social sciences sort of research on studying people, right? So studying older adults learning to code, doing surveys, doing interviews of conversational programmers and in industry doing surveys and, um, of non-native English speakers. So those are more traditionally what you would think of as kind of social sciences research, right? Of understanding how people work and why they work as such. Um, but a lot of my work is on building technologies and prototyping technologies and, um, you know, the Python tutor system, this CodeOpticon thing, the live chat thing, those things are all, uh, technology based. And, uh, oftentimes, you know, for, It's hard for people to kind of parse apart, you know, like, you know, what, where is the line between what it's meant by quote unquote research versus uh, more developing a product, right? So a lot of these things you can imagine could go into products. And where is that line drawn? And one dimension to slice this, like you alluded to, is via time dimension. So um, when I was at, I think Microsoft Research, they had this, they have these uh, papers or these blog posts, I mean many companies think about this, but uh you know at Microsoft that you know I, I worked there for a bit as an intern as a visiting researcher. They had this chart somewhere i mean I'm sure there are many charts <laughs> like this in the business world, and it was like talking about how you know there was the you know six month horizon three six months, one year that's like the product cycle, right? You have to ship something within the few months, we have to iterate, you know, the, the business, the pace of business is very fast, right, especially in technology. So if you're a public company, you have quarterly earnings reports, if you're a startup, you have to compete with other startups, and you know, and technology moves fast. So, you know, things that you're thinking about three months, six months, one year out are more in the pure development. And then things that you think about, you know, two, three years out, uh, people sometimes call this Advanced development or advanced research or advanced R&D, different names. So basically, it's things that we want to productize in the next few years. And we know it's on the horizon, but we want to do more exploration and more, uh, more prototyping for. And then there's, a, you know, the five years or plus out. And it's really hard to predict where the future will go in five years or more. But the hope is you know, both in academia and universities and at companies that have invested in long-term research labs, the idea is that we want to try to think about stuff that may be relevant five years or more in the future and try to prototype these sorts of possible futures, right? So kind of building possible futures and knowing that Most of these possible futures might not come to fruition, but if we don't now seed the, you know, 10,000 possible futures, we won't actually have a future when we get to it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I think a criticism of like the classic criticism of academia is that, you know, people work on projects that never come to fruition. Um, but then obviously you could point to, um, all of the, the projects that seemed like that they were just like, uh, just um very heady not practical but now they're like form the basis of all sorts of systems that are used every day by millions or billions of people uh,
1: yeah i mean yeah that, that's a classic thing and it's hard for people to see often because it's you know if you were to pick a project at random right i mean it's like the uh uh <laughs> you know they, they do this in, in congress all the time right that you know they they pick out these you know these science research grants and they're like, Oh, why are they spending $300,000 on, on, you know, testing frog legs or whatever, right? They'll pick out the most obscure thing. And it is true. I mean, if you pick out a project at random, then it might sound kind of ridiculous. And chances are that one project out of 10,000 is not going to affect the future in any noticeable way. But collectively, you know, some subset of those will move the field forward. And even the ones who don't might, the ideas might percolate into other ones that do. So the effects are very indirect. So I, I, I totally see that.
0: So um, uh, if, if um, not sure how to phrase this, basically, um, clearly it works somehow, like clearly enough papers, uh, enough re- research does good work that you know science moves forward um but but you know there's some research that doesn't move move any field forward um and like uh so i guess for both from a internal perspective like if i'm a researcher who wants to produce more meaningful work or if like i'm someone who's like working at the nsf and i want to like write better grants mm-hmm. like what are the strategies um for like you know, just doing uh, more meaningful research, finding better problems. I guess.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a big question. I mean, I, if I if I had the answer to that question, I'd be a well, lot, you know, I'd be a lot wealthier. Well, I mean, if <laughs> I <laughs> answer to that question, I would you would probably start a company off and well, be Elon Musk guess, or something. So but, uh, I guess
0: I, I like kind of left off the uh, the, the like pre- the the context to that question. Mm-hmm. There are two projects that that it seems like you were part of. One was the CDE project, which looks uh-huh. a lot like Docker. And then uh-huh. the, this other project around opportunistic programming, which looks a lot mm-hmm. like this this new startup called Kite. Um, yeah. And so it's like, it's, at least to me, you definitely have uh, like a lot of street cred in terms of being like ahead of the curve, uh, definitely ahead of industry. So um, that, that's the context of why I'm asking you and not just like some random researcher.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for that, actually. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because... Um, you know, one of the marks of it's interesting, because, you know, the life of a researcher is interesting, because, you know, if you really are dedicated to it, that means that you don't really directly profit off of the inventions or the kind of discoveries you make, right? Because I mean, you can, because then then what you do is you transition to being an entrepreneur, right? You start a company out of your PhD work or out of your research work, and, and people successfully navigate that. But if you kind of adopt a mindset of I want to always be trying to push forward on the next thing, then by by its very nature, you are trying to look for stuff five years out and you're not doing the really hard work of commercializing it. Right. So um I think I think a big part of how a lot of these projects came about was just kind of sniffing at real world demand. And um and, you know, I think Paul Graham of Y Combinator, a long time ago, he was writing essays, you know, before Y Combinator about just if you hang out at, uh, you know, if you're just hanging out at, you know, places where people are, are inventing the future in a way, you know, so university research labs, you know, these, you know, in Silicon Valley and spaces where people are just on the forefront of doing stuff, you, you're just able to sniff out problems before, the, you know, most of the world does, right? And I think, um, uh, you know, how some of these early projects came about was because I observed, you know, uh, graduate students, researchers, struggling with how to do programming, right? Struggling with, you know, using the web, struggling with installing different environments on their computer to run their research projects and stuff, and then coming up with sort of prototype technical solutions uh, for for those kinds of things. But um, yeah, it's 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 a really interesting progression, and and also, I mean, the other meta point about this is that you don't really. You know, there was not really a, I forgot who did an interview about this, but but kind of the impact of research is that it's oftentimes hard to prove a causal link, right? I mean, obviously, a lot of ideas are in the air at the same time. There's this great book by Stephen Johnson, the science writer, called Where Good Ideas Come From. Hmm. It's a great book. And one of the theses in the book is that there are just good ideas in the air at any given time, and there will be people who latch onto them, right? So this idea of Docker or CDE or, or, you know, reproducing a build environment is, you know, more than one person was coming up with this idea at that time. And some people like myself were thinking about it from an academic perspective, how do you help researchers? And then there are others who are more entrepreneurially minded is how do we help sysadmins and DevOps folks uh, do that? So yeah, I I think that, uh, I mean, I, I think in the end, it's very hard to actually show that a certain project you pursue or certain papers you publish directly led to X. And I think that as researchers, we, you know, that bar is too high, right? We shouldn't really aim to say that, you know, whatever we do directly influences a product because it's, it's hard to prove that. And, and my kind of view of research, like I put in that dog <laughs> park video is if you just see the world with interesting ideas and openly share them, uh, then, you know, that's just, that's a net positive to society. And, you know, if other people pick it up, that's great. If they don't, then you just keep doing other stuff.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think that kind of describes how most researchers look at it. Um, you, you're, like you, I guess a different, your um, Python tutor is kind of like different because you came up with the idea and you wrote papers about it, but then you also are pursuing like the actual idea.
1: Yeah, it's a weird thing. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about it. I mean, it's that it's a, I'm in this strange position of, you know, maintaining this project that's actually pretty popular and widely used. I mean, we have, you know, every day there's, I would say there's almost, I mean, I can look at the stats, but on the order of around 10,000 users, you know, daily active users on the, you know, around 10,000, and they're executing, you know, each one is executing, you know, I don't know, a few, Pieces of code, ten pieces. So it's like on the order of fifty thousand or hundred thousand unique pieces of code that's being run per day. So it's it's reasonably trafficked. Um, You know, it's not a giant production site or anything. But um, so yeah. So on one hand, it's Python Tutor is the site that's a service, and on the other hand, it's a platform for trying to trying to explore different research ideas as well. So there's this dual role that I think is actually very rare in academia because you know in academia you're mostly building one-off prototypes or doing studies rather than actually maintaining a piece of software at the same time so it is unique in that way
0: yeah i like the the canonical example in my mind of of someone who, who does research and then and then makes a company about it it would be like the the google guys they like wrote the paper mm-hmm. and then and they left but it, it sounds like that's not in your future this this python tutor is kind of a, a one-off
1: for you oh yeah yeah the, the this question of commercializing and everything yeah i mean i've 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 gotten this question quite a few times. And, um, one, I mean, partially it's just, you know, you know, where I put my mental efforts and, you know, I'm kind of, my head's more in the academic and the research and the, and the academic game at this point. And also the other thing is, I feel like, you know, ed tech or educational technology businesses are are hard to build. I mean, there's a lot of challenges in building ed tech businesses that I've kind of kept up with as a spectator. Um, you know, you basically, these kind of learn-to-code platforms, it, it, it's hard to get a lot of traction and also paid traction, right? I mean, wh- I think the, the best, quote-unquote, I don't know, best, but the closest path for this, if I were to commercialize this technology, would be to actually create content around it. So, you know, creating mini-courses, creating tutorials, creating screencasts. Um, you know, there are people who run these independent businesses. This guy... What's his name? Gary Bernhardt, who does the Ruby, you yes. know, he does a lot of Ruby stuff. Destroy um, all He has a paid Yeah, he has yeah Destroy All So he has a paid section. And um, one of my colleagues, Michael Kennedy, who does Talk Python, he does a Python pod, very popular Python podcast. And he has Python training courses and premium services on his site. So I can imagine running something very independent like that. But then you know, that would just require me to go all in on that. Right. And right now I'm not, you know, that's not really in the cards for me. But, you know, if I could fork myself and, you know, have a parallel version of myself, that would be great. Yeah. Um,
0: so um, a lot of your uh, prototypes, um, I think, like, the word is scaffolding. They, like, pr- they take existing languages and then s- somehow provide uh, this structure that makes them, make them easier. So, like, mm-hmm. Python Tutor makes the existing Python environment easier. Um, you have another project that makes, like, version control, Git kind of stuff easier. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, like you have made, a lot of your projects take the existing environments that we're stuck with and makes them easier, um, which contrasts with my focus and, and like kind of the, the research that I follow, our focus is, is more on designing new languages and tools from the ground up. So like to, to keep with the scaffolding metaphor, um, like the, if you, 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 take the building that exists as, and, and then you, try right. and you you build <laughs> scaffolding. And, and I think we're, we're like, Going off into like a new place and, and building new buildings from the foundation up. Um, so I'd be yeah, I'd be curious to, to hear about why you chose uh, scaffolding versus like fin- foundation.
1: Yeah, this this is a great question. Um, I think that you know one way to think about that is that I I feel like that earlier on in my career, you know, it's a it's it's easier to get. I get traction. I guess scaffolding. It's a very meta word. Um, by thinking about how do we improve the world we currently have, right? It's like the world we currently have is kind of, you know, hacky. It's kind of put together with duct tape. So, so computer security research is a great example of this, or network security is a great example of this. You know, a lot of it is. Uh, putting duct tape around our internet protocols, which are were put together with duct tape, you know, 40 years ago. So, you know, a lot of the the practical security, applied security work is look, you know, our internet's so insecure because these protocols were made so long ago. There's this, we need backwards compatibility. We have to live with this. How do we make it better? And then there's the other end of people are doing, let's imagine designing internet protocols from scratch. And how could we create a better internet if you know if we could start over? And I think in the educational world similar of can you know? How do we give a better experience to people who are currently using languages, and then also, how do we make better languages or better user interfaces that are completely different and not constrained by what we currently have? So I think my current focus on the scaffolding, as you mentioned, is is more of a pragmatic one in terms of I just feel like it's easier to make kind of concrete traction that way, and also it doesn't require I guess as much upfront investment. So like uh, I good example of the other end um, that you're talking about is you know what uh, Brett Victor and his lab are doing right with dynamic land and with um you know w- where Alan Kay was involved in this before and the folks who are really trying to invent the future yeah of that's right that's Even who, who
0: I was kind of alluding to yeah
1: yeah yeah um th- yeah we can talk about that so so you know that requires a tremendous amount of well, one, funding, right? Because you need people. I mean, you need to build a team to do that. And also, sustainability is a is a challenging thing, right? So, you know, the history of the Y Combinator Research Lab and, uh, you know, uh, and, and how Alan has gotten funding from various companies to cobble the other funding from uh, SAP and from, you know, um, various other companies throughout the years. And, you know, the latest, I think, I feel like the latest status is a lot of that has collapse and brett's lab is now you know he has his own lab and they're trying to get fun they have some funding from you know wealthy silicon valley folks and it, it's it's hard to sustain those things and like i mean think about it right like you know you know alan Kay's is a turing award winner and he's you know he's the you know he's one of the most famous people in the field and even he has to cobble together money from sources to, to do these sorts of really uh big uh grand sort of things at scale and to um and to be sustainable. And, you know, as someone like myself who just came out of graduate school, right, who no one knows who I am, it'd be very hard to imagine uh, building that structure in that lab to do that. Um, and another fascination of mine is, you know, how do you build organizations to sustain research? And so, you know, the it's a super long-winded answer to your question of the, the strategy I chose of building on scaffolding and en- enhancing existing tools is because that was the most practical path, at least for me now. And I hope, you know, if my career becomes successful and, and sustainable longer term, to be able to support these bigger ambitions. So, you know, one direct path for academics to do that is if you can uh, get more well-known and you can get funding from a larger organization to build, you know, kind of a larger research group around this broader vision, that's one way to do that. But as you can see, a lot of people, when they're starting their careers, it's hard to get that traction, right? Because the, one of the only ways to raise money when you're younger is uh, for entrepreneurship, right? So you, know, you see young people raising money in tech, but that money is going toward building a startup that is hopefully going to be profitable in some way, right? So, it and not toward this, you know, another example, uh, there's another example with uh, Chris Granger, right? Building the Eve project yes. and the light table thing. Right. That was, I think, the closest someone has gotten to, you know, take achieving liftoff on that. But that ultimately had to be shut down as well. Mm-hmm. Don't be so pessimistic, but
0: <laughs> no, I I think that was a I, I love following yeah your your line of your line of thinking there, and I'm to me I was a little bit shocked to hear that you hope to get um, to to the foundations one day, but like you're you're kind of hoping to to start kind of with lower hanging fruit for practical reasons. Like I'm I'm like. Um, kind of inspired by that. You know, I was, I I kind of figured that you'd say something like, ah, like programming is like never going to improve. Like this is all we can. I thought you were gonna say something even more pessimistic. Uh,
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think there are people who are, uh, who are doing the more, uh, Greenfield source, but they are all fairly supported by well-supported teams. So one example is Scratch, right? The blocks-based environment for uh, targeted for kids, right? The Scratch environment that's very popular. That's run out of the MIT Media Lab by uh, Mitch Resnick and folks, and they are you know they're relatively well-funded because they're you know he's very you know uh, influential in the field. And then there's um, there's other folks working on. I mean, i followed these sorts of future programming education projects at least you know um you know microsoft has tried to do a few and a lot of times the history of these is that some company you know some senior person a company gets excited right about you know uh, pick whatever company and they're like oh let's invest in this for a few years and then we have some engineers some researchers work on it we build some prototypes but ultimately you know attention kind of waxes and wanes and then you know the the project gets abandoned or it gets open source which is great uh but then it, it's just hard to keep up the momentum so these projects are few and far between they're scratch which really targets uh k-12 there's uh, the racket series mm-hmm. of uh, programming languages and educational environments so that was called doctor scheme so it was a scheme-based kinds of languages um there's a few other ones like you know android app inventor which started at google and now is being run at mit as well but they um i think everyone is facing the similar challenges of how do you find sustainable funding for this sort of stuff and I mean, we could talk a little about that toward the end as well but yeah that's i think everyone is because there's a lot of funding for you know, venture back, the traditional venture back startups where the prerogative is to grow and get customers and then, you know, hopefully get acquired, or, you know, if you're really lucky, go public as a company. But there's not really a direct route for sustainable funding for trying to do this stuff that's five or ten years out or more.
0: Yeah. I I I'm totally with you. I think, yeah, like a lot of a lot of people in, in this world, the people who um like Brad and Jonathan Edwards and um, Alan Kaye that I think they, they complain about that a lot. I think Brad in particular, yeah, have you talked to Jonathan
1: at all uh, or for your podcast or just privately about it. Have we talked to who? To John, the, uh, Jonathan? Yeah. Edwards. Yeah. We've talked
0: privately. Um, and just like on the internet, um, he and Brad, yeah. They, they right. It, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And he has this like great gallery, right? He has this Google slideshow of the, you know, history of programming interfaces, which is yeah, awesome. No,
0: it really is awesome. That's, I think that might be the first time I saw him, um,
1: yeah, Jonathan was actually uh in San Diego. He was doing kind of a so after after he spent some time at Alan Kay's lab, he went down to San Diego and he just, you know, I'm at UC San Diego and He just came to visit our lab and come to our group meetings and chat with our grad students, and he was really great. And I actually first knew him when he was at MIT many years ago as a as a research scientist. And he's been work well, he he was working on this thing called subtext back then, but he's you know, he has a new system he's working on, but he's been you know, he's been keeping this up for a while, but it is, it is rare. Right. And it's only him, right. It's, it's, you know, you know, it's, it's only him. It's kind of a one man band just like, just like me, but it's, you know, it's, it's rare, but it's possible. Yeah. Um, so I think
0: we're kind of, kind of at the top of an hour. So I want to just check in if you have time for one or two more questions or if you have to run.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm fine. Going for a, for a little bit more. Cool.
0: Um, um, so, just in the interest of time, I'll, I'll jump to a question that I, that I'm particularly curious about. Um, so, a problem that I've been facing in my, in my own research, um, I guess to to, to 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 summarize without getting too too much in depth, my research it, it's similar in spirit to your research in that I'm interested in helping people learn programming, prototype new things um, without having to be like amazing programmers, uh, and and I, I I build like prototypes and. For me, um, like winning would be a, a prototype that I could eventually turn into, if not a company, then maybe a nonprofit. Like so something like I'll eventually mm-hmm. build a ship that that I'll then get to like you know ride on, um, as opposed to just right, like right. abandoning each prototype for the next. Uh, as, as
1: yeah, so like a Khan Academy, you know that yeah. sort of model. yeah, either like
0: Khan yeah. Academy or yeah. Mitch, or like Mitch Resnick uh, scratch like a, a project yeah. that turn or um, like. Um, like Google, but like less successful. You know, I, I don't expect to start the next Google, but like a project that turned <laughs> into a business somehow. that?
1: <laughs> without the billions of dollars. Yeah, I, have I imagine.
0: Yeah. Anyways. Um, so, uh, but one of the things, so when I first got started, um, my, you, you could describe my um, attitude was, to, was like, I'm the first person to have any original ideas. Like, I'm just going to go sit with my computer and hack on things until I, you know, fix, like figure it out. And, and now my mm-hmm. attitude is, is kind of the opposite. Like, you know, I, like I, the, no ideas is original. I, I, every idea I've ever thought was original. There's like tons of papers that, um, that I, that I could have read instead of wasting all this time on my own, like re- reinventing the wheel. And so now I, 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 can't, I, I probably, this had to read too many papers and I uh-huh. your article on opportunistic paper reading, which gave a good strategy for, 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 staying in the middle somehow. So I'd be curious to kind of go through that a little bit with you.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a, that's another hard problem. I mean, you, you bring up, I mean, one of the reasons why I was excited to do this podcast was that I would feel no matter what, it will give me new ideas for things to write about or to vlog about. So that is, you know, so we have one in this hour and I guess at least I have one, I hope you've gotten something useful on this too, but at least I've got something useful because, you know, I've gotten some great questions to think about, but um, yeah, this question of, you know, how, to what extent should you just start hacking and learning by personal experience and to what extent should you step back and read what other people have done or study, you know, not, not just papers, right? Study old systems. So, so I, I was listening to your podcast with uh, Pete Hunt of react JS fame right before mm-hmm. this one. Cause I wanted to, I wanted to see how you were as an interviewer and everything. <laughs> so I, uh, uh, and Pete was, it was interesting listening to him because I've heard his talks before, but I, I really like how he went into a lot of the history of, mm-hmm. Uh, of programming systems and, you know, even before the web, right? He was saying a lot of these ideas from React, yes, they were around in older object-oriented systems and Java, C++ and stuff, but we took them to the web and we innovated. So on one hand, studying old stuff is good, but on the other hand, you know, you shouldn't be discouraged, right? Because like the setting is so different, right? So like there's always this running joke that whenever people are doing something and, you know, a uh, new programming languages research or programming tools, or education tools, there's always going to be someone, you know, if you're giving a talk in the back of the room that raised their hand, like, oh, we did this in the 1960s with Lisp machines, right? <laughs> yep. There's always going to be someone who's like, yeah, we did this at, with Lisp in the 60s or at Xerox Park. Right? <laughs> there's always the Xerox Park line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? We're always doing this. Yeah, we did this in small talk at Xerox Park. We did this in Lisp and, you know, at MIT in the 60s. And, you know, while the seeds of the ideas might be there, the world is so different that, um that uh that you can make really interesting innovations um i i think that my own personal i i guess my own hack on this is just to ask ask someone who is a bit more knowledgeable in the field and use that as a way of filtering and that's also why i think i probably mentioned in a vlog or blog somewhere is that that's why being in some kind of a community of practice in an institution. It doesn't have to be a university. It could be things like, you know, the recurse center, which used to be called hacker school or being in a startup incubator or, you know, wherever you are, if you're just in a community where you have mentors who have been through this before, or, you know, in your case, maybe if there are startup incubators or these spaces where people have thought a lot about commercializing educational technologies um they would just have insights like yeah you know i my hunch is that my spidey sense is that this this way may be good or or you should stop reading so many of these papers and you should start hacking or yeah maybe you should take a step back from hacking and go talk to potential users and like i just think that i mean this goes full circle at the beginning of i just think that in-person mentorship from someone who has done this before is so powerful and uh and it's something that's really hard to replicate online, right? I mean, if you're kind of reading into the void. Um, have you seen my... Uh, just Sorry, another side. So I, I do this podcast hour with my friend Robert Akeda, who he's running this website called MathPapa.com. MathPapa, which is a... Um, it's, a, it's basically, it's funny how we did this, arrived at this independently, but his site is basically like a Python tutor mm-hmm. for math. So you write math equations and it tutors you and it steps you through breaking down the equations into parts and helping you scaffold really and solve equations. And he decided to go a commercial route. So he started a business off it that's actually very sustainable. It's uh, it's two people right now, but they make, I don't know how much they make, but they make enough to like, you know, so that they don't need a job, Right. Um, and on our podcast we talk like every month and he talks a decent amount about the challenges of starting an educational technology business so like you know someone like himself might be a good person to connect with i can connect you with him offline but you know just any personal connections to just help you filter out this large swath information because otherwise it's just it's super overwhelming right you're sitting in front of a terminal saying you know what should i do should i start typing code or should i Read a bunch of papers or look at a bunch of other people's projects. It's the answer isn't really clear. Yeah,
0: that that does a good job of summing it up. Um, and I, I think your advice of finding an in-person community is makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm wondering what what approaches there are if, if that's like not an option. Um, at, you know, like uh, kind of kind of like your a lot of your work is like enabling you know, learning programming at scale. I wonder, um, what, what sorts of ways we can scale like research, yeah. you know, mentorship.
1: It, it's kind of like learning, learning at scale, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I guess, yeah. And I'm thinking more like yeah. specifically like scaling research. Like,
1: uh, oh, that's right. Okay. I see. So scaling kind of, how do you, that's right. So, you know, research has been by definition, kind of a non-scalable thing, right? You're doing it in a certain kind of institution, you might need close mentorship. You know, you have this, uh, there's a lot of structure behind it. You know, how do we actually enable, you know, discoveries, you know, you know, there, there are billions of people in the world. There are many, you know, many, many of these people have the ability to create really interesting discoveries or inventions. Uh, but they're not able to right now because of institutional barriers or just lack of access to the right information. I think that is a really, really cool, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting problem. One way that some of my colleagues have dealt with this, um, it's actually called a crowd research project. This is some of my colleagues from Stanford did this, and uh, it's called crowd research. And what they've basically done is they've basically done remote mentoring. So it's back to this mentoring thing. So they've structured research projects, um, I don't know the details, but basically they have grad students, let's say grad students at Stanford or something. And you're like, I want help with my research project. I want help brainstorming and ideating and implementing. So they actually, you know, put out a call online and they have students like undergrad students or or even people who are not in school from all around the world kind of sign up to be on these kind of project teams. And they kind of have weekly meetings and try to usher in kind of usher the teams together to formulate ideas and implement them. And they've actually, you know, their marker of success is literally, can we get these teams together to actually author legitimate research papers that are published? Mm. Um, And they actually have done that. So, which is really cool. They've done that for a few. And and in fact, one of their, um, uh, uh, what is it called? One of their uh, value propositions is that a lot of students from lesser known universities around the world, or even not in a formal university, um, they may not have the opportunity to say participate in research projects with people from you know from the U.S. And some of them might actually want to go to graduate school in the U.S. or go work in the U.S. later. And they they're motivated to do this as kind of a credentialing, right? Like if I can participate in an interesting project that gets published, then I can get recognition from the publication and from a recommendation letter from you know a Stanford professor. So in fact, the the long story short is kind of closing out the hours. One of those students actually. Uh, from a university in India, uh, ended up coming to S- San Diego as a as a master student, and uh, I didn't know about him before. But one of the crowd research grad students referred him to me, and he said, "Oh yeah, you're uh, you're joining the faculty, being a professor at UC San Diego." There's this guy that I was working with, and he got into the graduate program here, and he, he would love to chat with you. And I actually chatted with him right when I started two years ago, and uh, and we worked really well together. So we've uh, we've, we published one research paper together and we submitted a second one. He's, um, he's well poised to, you know, going, he's going to industry right now. He wants to work in industry for a few years. He has a job lined up, but he wants to come back to do a PhD later. And with these research publications under his belt, he's well poised to get into a a very good place. And that all started because of this crowd research program, because otherwise he wouldn't have been really discovered. So that was a happy ending in that. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's, that sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, very cool. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe now it's, it's inspiring me. I feel like I need to go, go find myself, uh, a mentor of some sort.
1: Yeah. And that's, it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's really a challenge. And that's why, I mean, one way, you know, one thing I tell students about is, is, is looking into alumni networks, right? So, you know, from your university or from, you know, you know, I think just in-person networks are so key and, and you're right, you know, before and now, you know, this, kind of mentoring at scale, or really this kind of scaling of research is, you know, you can reduce it to a problem of mentoring at scale, right? How do you scale up mentoring and, and finding people, uh, mentors who can point them in the right direction? That's, that's really hard, right? Because even the work that I've talked about isn't really mentoring. It's kind of helping you do some programming and do some more rote and simple tasks, but not like, how can we take someone who is, you know, very talented and very, uh, hardworking and motivated and connect them to the proper resources and guide them. And that's, I think that's like the, you know, a trillion dollar question.
0: That's the (laughs) Holy grail. Um, cool. Well, anyways, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I just want to thank you again for, for taking the time to speak with me from a cold email. I really appreciate it. And this was fun.